Welcome back to another exciting episode of the Gap and Wrap Biosimilars podcast series, the podcast that dives deep into the world of biosimilars in rheumatology and gastroenterology. I am your host and sitting wrap president, Amanda Mixon, and today we have a truly special episode in store for you. We are delving into the intricate realm of biosimilar development, exploring the groundbreaking research and innovation that fuels this rapidly growing field. Now let's introduce our guest for today's episode. Joining me today is Tanya G. I'm I am totally going to mess up her last name, so I will let her say her last name. Um, but she's a clinical pharmacist and friend. Um, she's got a wealth of knowledge and experience in the realm of biosimilars. She sits on RAP's educational committee and has presented extensively on biosimilars at the national level. Welcome, Tanya. We're so fortunate to have you today. I couldn't think of a better person to, to have this chat with. Thank you so much for having me, Amanda. And for anybody that's curious, it's Tanya Golovanov. Um, find me on LinkedIn. It's, it's you know, only one on there. <laughs> uh, so it's an honor to be part of the podcast today. Um, I've been working with RAP for several years now, and it's always a rewarding experience. Uh, the RAP members truly are a fantastic group of people whom I've learned so very much from over the years and made some truly awesome relationships. And I, Amanda, for one, cannot wait for our national meeting in Arizona this coming September. Oh, me too. I know I'm like counting down the days. Um, I think it's going to be so exciting. We're doing some some new things this year, and I'm excited to see how they go. Um, but yes, welcome. And I'm so happy We've learned a lot from you too, Tanya. So um, with that, let's go ahead and jump right in. So today's topic is the development of biosimilars. Tanya, can you help us distill the immense amount of research and development that goes into actually creating these biosimilars? Of course. You know, the process for biosimilar development involves many rigorous steps. Uh, in general, I put them into a few different categories. The first is target identification and producing the molecule. Um, that's more of a manufacturing process, which I think we're going to talk about next. So I'll hold off on that for right now. But after that molecule is synthesized, it undergoes very rigorous analytical testing to establish comprehensive understanding of the similarity of these biosimilars to their reference products. Now, these studies involve using techniques we all might have come across back in our college days. So we're going to get a little deep here. <laughs> uh, things like mass spectrometry, chromatography, and lots of different bioassays that are performed to compare that structural and functional characterization of that biosimilar molecule. Or protein is probably a better term to use here. Um, Preclinical studies are then conducted in various lab and animal models to assess the safety, toxicity, uh, your pharmacokinetics. So when we're talking about PK, I like to think about that absorption, distribution, metabolism, and excretion. And then, of course, our, our pharmacodynamics as well, which really talks about how those agents are affecting our body. So 
Once we've completed the lab and animal models, we move on to clinical studies in the human subjects. Now these studies include that PK and PD evaluations that demonstrate that that proposed biosimilar is moving through the body in the same way and providing the same effect as that reference product. Um, there's also immunogenicity assessments conducted as well to prove that those agents are similar. Wow, so it's quite the rigorous process to develop these biosimilars. Yeah, it sure is, Amanda. What's more is other comparative clinical studies are sometimes conducted even after the completion of the ones we've already talked about to address any potential remaining uncertainty about whether that proposed biosimilar has any clinically meaningful differences from that reference product. All in all, it can cost upwards of $100 million and take up to nine years for a company to complete which is much costlier than about one to two million and maybe two years that it can cost to develop those small molecule generic medications that we all kind of think about when we think about generics. You know, I think it's, it, this is, you know, pretty remarkable. And I think that it's really important that we as, you know, APPs and of course, you know, patients as well really understand how involved this process is. I think when you understand it, um, it can obviously give us a lot more comfort as we are approaching the era of the biosimilars, which is really a, a upon us. I mean, we've kind of been doing this now with, for sure, the infusible medicines. But now as we kind of see these sub-Qs coming, I think it's just going to become bigger and bigger. So I do think it's really important that we understand, you know, and since you've given us such a great background on the R&D that goes into a biosimilar, can you tell us a little bit more about the manufacturing process that you previously mentioned? And, you know, I feel like it's not really something that we talk a lot when we're speaking about clinical settings, but I really do kind of want to understand this more as I'm sure do it does our audience. Absolutely. Now, again, it can get a little technical, but I'll try to explain it uh, as well as the overall concepts as best I can. So that manufacturing process of biosimilars involves several different stages. Uh, the very first one is cell line development. Um, the first step involves selecting a suitable cell line that is capable of producing that target biosimilar protein. Now, this involves lots of different genetic engineering techniques that uh, introduce genes responsible for producing the proteins into the host cells, such as mammalian cell lines like hamster cells or microbial systems such as bacteria or yeast. Now, once the cell line is established, it's cultured and expanded in bioreactors under controlled conditions. So think giant metal vats that are, you know, perfectly temperatured and everything else, which allows these cells to multiply and produce the desired protein through the process of fermentation. Once our fermentation period is complete, the cell culture is then harvested. In the case of mammalian cell cultures, the cells are typically separated from the culture medium through centrifugation or filtration techniques. Uh, microbial cultures may require additional steps to lyse those cells and release those biosimilar proteins. Now, the harvested, the harvested cell culture undergoes a series of purification steps then to isolate and purify the biosimilar protein. 
These steps typically include filtration, chromatography. Um, we have lots of different types of chromatography. We have affinity chromatography, ion exchange chromatography, or size exclusion chromatography. And there's also other purification techniques such as ultrafiltration and diafiltration. Each step helps us to remove, remove any purities such as host cell proteins, DNA, and other contaminants while enriching that target protein. Now, through this manufacturing process, the biosimilar product undergoes extensive characterization to ensure its similarity to that reference biologic. Because at any one of those points, we can actually start to vary from our, our reference biologic because they're such complex proteins. Now there's so many different analytical techniques, including mass spectrometry, electrophoresis, high-performance liquid chromatography, and biological assays that can be used to assess that critical quality attributes, such as that protein structure, purity, and potency. Another step that occurs throughout this manufacturing process is, of course, quality control. Uh, there are very extensive measures that are in place to ensure the safety, efficacy, and consistency of that biosimilar now, in-process testing, as well as final product testing, is conducted to verify compliance with those predetermined specifications. Now, that's including that testing for purity, impurities, identity, potency, sterility, and any endotoxin levels that might be present. Once these biosimilar proteins have been purified and characterized, it's formulated to optimize that stability and compatibility for its intended use. Now, think of this as adding buffers, stabilizers, preservatives, or other excipients. Now that formulated product is then filled into the appropriate vial syringes or final container um, that you might see in your clinic or in the pharmacy. And these fill finish processes ensure that that final product is ready for distribution and administration. Um, you know, Amanda, it's important to note that this is a very general overview and manufacturing processes for biosimilars may vary depending on the specific product, that target protein and the manufacturing facility. But I think this kind of gives us a pretty good idea of what goes into making them. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, even though we didn't go through the minutia of every single step, I mean, there are a lot of these highly scientific steps that go into manufacturing biosimilars. There certainly is, Amanda. Um, you know, I'm not sure clinicians will use this on a day-to-day -day basis. I have had one patient ask me in all my years, like, what does it mean to be manufactured and produced? And I got pictures out. It, it was a fun day for me, but, um, <laughs> you know, the it, it's really good background information to be aware of, um, especially as we move through this biosimilar podcast series. Absolutely. And I think, you know, to that point, you know, even if we 
it's just important to understand that, yes, are we going to use this on a day-to-day basis? You know, probably not. However, you know, when we do have those patients or, you know, even other providers that might ask us, they might notice that their patient was changed from X medicine to Y medicine. And what exactly does that mean? And so I think it's really important for us to really, you know, have a good foundation and understanding so that when we do have this happen, we know kind of what we're doing and how to explain it most importantly to the to the patients. Uh, now, kind of switching gears a little bit, you know, I've seen the names of some of these biosimilars and it's kind of interesting. So, you know, the trailing letters seem random and obtuse to me. Um, can you just provide an explanation of naming convention um, utilized for biosimilars, including the rationale behind the specific naming approach? Yes, Amanda. And I agree. Sometimes you look at it and you're like, did they just get some ABC soup and start pulling out spoonfuls? to? Yeah, exactly. (laughs) But, you know, there is actually specific naming scheme for monoclonal antibodies. Um, The structure consists of that prefix, a substem A, substem B, and then that MAB or MAB at the end to indicate that it's a monoclonal antibody. Now, without getting too far into the weeds here, because I know we could probably talk all day just about naming medications, a quick review, the prefix is chosen randomly to help us be able to pronounce it, or so they say. Um, (laughs) Substem A specifies the target of the antibody, such as uh, interleukin or a tumor, while substem B specifies that sequence from which the monoclonal antibody was derived. So think mouse, human. that's where that comes from. And again, that MAB is placed at the end to signify that that molecule is that monoclonal antibody. Now, like the biosimilar core name, there's actually quite a pretty big framework for the suffix or the letters that you see attached at the end. Now, the reason these suffixes are needed in the first place is because unlike generic copies of a non-biologic small molecule drug, think Tylenol versus acetaminophen, biosimilars are not exactly the same as the original or reference product. And because the process by which a biologic is produced is proprietary and the molecules are so very complex, biosimilars are expected to have minor differences when compared to that reference product, despite being highly similar with no clinically meaningful differences. Okay, so if I'm understanding this correctly, we can't just use the typical generic or compound name we are used to with our biologics now because technically they have minor differences which are due to this manufacturing process being unique for each biosimilar, correct? Exactly. And the FDA has published guidance on non-proprietary naming that addresses the issue of biosimilars, which gives us an idea of how companies land on those suffixes. So the guidance requires a proposed biosimilar applicant to kind of create a suffix composed of four lowercase letters that we've all seen that is that distinguishing identifier to be included after that proper name designated by the FDA. So there are tons of rules that go into what that suffix should have. 
So it has to be unique. It has to be devoid of any meaning. So again, ABC soup spoon, that's what I always think of. Uh, it has to be lowercase letters that are um, at least three of which being distinct. It can, it has to be non-proprietary. It has to use that hyphen to be attached to that core name. And it has to be free of any legal barriers that would restrict its usage. So after specifying what it should do, they also go on, of course, with lots of rules of what you cannot do. So it can't be false or misleading, such as making any misrepresentations uh, with respect to safety or efficacy. Uh, it cannot include numerals or other symbols aside from that hyphen attached to the suffix. Uh, it cannot include abbreviations commonly used in clinical practice in a manner that they could lead that suffix to be misinterpreted as another element or prescription on an order, which we definitely don't want. Uh, it can't contain or suggest any drug, drug substance name or core name. It cannot look similar to or be capable of being mistaken for the name of a currently marketed product. So, for example, it should not increase the risk of confusion or medical errors with the product and or other products in that clinical setting. It cannot look similar to or otherwise connote the name of the license holder. Um, and it can't be similar to any other FDA designated non-proprietary name suffix. So ultimately, it's a lot. Um, but these extra requirements are really there to prevent the addition of the suffix from causing any unnecessary confusion that could lead to a medication error, um, such as that suffix being confused with another drug name or unintended route of administration or dosing interval. Wow, that is super interesting. I have to say, I, I never really understood any of that or knew any of that until right now. You know, I think the majority of us just look at those suffixes and think like to what you said, this ABC soup, you know? Yes, it's it's completely understandable. And I don't think anyone really needs to commit these rules to memory. But again, I think just having a good idea that they were methodically determined with the goal of preventing patient harm is something worth knowing, in my opinion. I totally agree. You know, and I think, you know, we've got a pretty good foundation from this conversation. I mean, you've given us such great information. Uh, I think, you know, now let's change gears just a little bit and focus on some of the practical aspects or really those take home messages from today's discussion. Uh, you know, so maybe we can kind of go through a few of, you know, a few things just to kind of really help us understand, you know, taking it all home. So as you think about this, you know, what things about research and development process of biosimilars do you think are important for patients to understand? I mean, you've obviously seen this in your clinic to, to understand, you know, what are patients saying? What are they skeptical of? And, and how do we address that? You know, I think that it's... Our, our patients just don't want to feel slighted, right? They're like, yes. well, I, I thought I was, I'm going to pick on Remicade because that's our, the oldest one here yeah. <laughs> that most of us are familiar with. But, you know, they're like, I thought I was getting Remicade and now I'm getting something else. And what is that? Why, you know, we all keep kind of hear, hearing about insurance companies 
dictating care. And it's, uh, I just think it's so important and key for our patients to understand that the biosimilar agents are going through extremely extensive and rigorous testing to ensure that they're going to provide that similar efficacy and safety to the reference product. And it can get a little bit muddy when they're like, but it's not exactly the same like Tylenol versus acetaminophen. Um, and I know that it's trying to explain this high level information we discussed today is not likely going to happen with our patients, but, you know, just assuring them over and over that these agents, the biosimilar agents are going to provide a similar effect with similar safety profiles as the reference product is extremely helpful in the clinical setting. Do you think that patients want to understand, you know, kind of the differences in terms of, you know, the manufacturing process of biosimilars versus the production of the reference product? Do you think they want to understand that or know that or not so much? You know, when, I mean, like I said, I had one day, it was like a dream come true when I, I can kind of get into the nitty gritty of this stuff with our patients. Um, that has only happened one time in almost eight years now. And I, I think that it, it is already overwhelming for them. Um, but you know, when it comes to that manufacturing process, you know, there might be different components and steps for each manufacturer and, you know, the easiest place to kind of talk about that with patients is through those cell line selection, because that is like the biggest area where we're going to get quite a bit of variation, because when a manufacturer owns a cell line, they don't share that. Right. Um, and, you know, ultimately, I just think it's super important for them to remember that these biologic agents in general are extremely complex proteins, which is why we can't create an exact replica. Um, you know, if we talk about an agent like Remicade, for example, due to updates in the manufacturing process, they are still using that same cell line, but just tweaking manufacturing process to improve um, efficiencies and, and things of that nature. Maybe they had better um, products that they were putting in, new technology, that the final product today is essentially a biosimilar of the product that was originally approved back in the 1990s. And that usually makes patients head spin. They're like, wait, what do you mean? And it's like, yeah, if you mess with any component to that manufacturing process, you might change that protein, even in the slightest way. And ultimately, I think our patients just really care about safety and efficacy. And most conversations that I've had with my patients is simply stating that these molecules are extremely complex and that, again, they go through very extensive testing to show that they're going to act the way that they're supposed to. I think that's a great way to put it and a great way to talk to patients about it too. Do you find that patients are asking you about the naming of biosimilars or how might you, um, how might you broach that with a patient if they had questions about it? Yes. You know, the naming conventions are confusing for sure. Again, because they're not, uh, you know, we, we all fall back to what we know and understand. And I would um, 
be fibbing if I told you that I had not compared a biosimilar to a generic at some point with my patients, because that's what's the easiest for them to understand. Uh, so when I try to explain it to them, I, you know, again, go back that these are so complex and because they're not exact replicas, they're actually a branded drug. And by them being branded, it gives the manufacturer the ability to name it a brand name, as well as have that core name or generic name that we're all familiar with. So, you know, such as that infliximab with that suffix attached. So whenever I'm explaining it or explaining it to them, um, I fall back on that generic name and say that this is what you know, if you're trying to discuss this with your providers or your or your insurance company, if they have questions, if you fall back on that generic or reference name, then it will resonate with most parties. And, you know, ultimately, I mean, with Remicade, we've had, we currently have four agents on the market, but there was a time when there was a lot more than that. And I know that Humira has a handful too. And it can get super scary for patients. And they're like, what is my insurance company telling me? Um, so I always, always just fall back and say, you know what, just, just call us if you have <laughs> questions, because we are a very good resource. And there's probably going to be questions, especially if we're dealing with um, insurance companies. Absolutely. And, you know, again, it just further reiterates the importance of clinical pharmacists. I mean, you know, for, for the folks listening, I'm very fortunate because Tanya practices in the, in the same, you know, town that I do. And so um, she's been super helpful to me uh, in terms of, of patients. And, you know, the patients just absolutely really value your expertise and, and that additional education that you're able to provide to them. And to me, I have to say, um, you know, so so thank you for that. And, you know, I think this is probably a good place to end things. Uh, again, thank you so much for joining us for this captivating episode of the Gap and Wrap Biosimilars podcast series. We've had the privilege of diving deep into the realm of biosimilars, exploring the intricate world of research, development, manufacturing, manufacturing and even the fascinating nuances of naming them. Uh, again, a special thank you goes out to our guest, Tanya, who is a clinical PharmD, whose expertise have shed light on incredible efforts behind biosimilars. Really, through her insights, we've been able to gain a deeper understanding of this rigorous process that goes into creating these agents, from the research and development phase to the meticulous manufacturing procedures. We've learned that biosimilars are the culmination of extensive scientific process. Thank you so much for having me, Amanda. It has been a pleasure to be here. I think that biosimilars, they're going to become a big part of our lives and the lives of our patients. So it's important that APPs in rheumatology and gastroenterology receive education on them. And I'm excited to hear the remainder of our biosimilar podcast series. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Gap and Wrap Biosimilars podcast series. I'd also like to say thank you to Pfizer and Amgen. Without their continued support of APP education, this podcast would not be possible. Please see our show notes for highlights from this episode and to fill out our evaluation so we can receive feedback. 
Also, just like we were discussing um, further, you know, please just make sure to join us next time as we discuss the development of biosimilars. And also remember to follow GAPCAST and RAPCAST so you don't miss an episode. Until next time, take care.